Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in the seventh verse. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? But to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. This is the second of five warning passages in the letter to the Hebrews, as the apostle speaks very directly to these Jewish Christians in the first century, warning them about the danger of apostasy. He doesn't want them to leave the superior light of the gospel or the inferior light of the law. He doesn't want them to abandon their newfound faith and go back to the Jewish synagogue. And therefore, he says, take heed, brethren, literally beware. When I see a beware of dog sign, it gets my attention. I take that seriously, don't you? I don't say, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. I figure if the owner puts up a beware sign, I better beware. Take heed. Take special notice. Listen up. This is serious. And he says to these brethren, I want to warn you about hardening your heart. Beware of a hardened heart. Now that's a warning each one of us this morning needs. I don't know if you're like me, but uh, to keep my heart tender is a daily challenge. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind one to another, tender hearted. Isn't that an important thing in our lives to be tender hearted? Because before you know it, the scar tissue of cynicism can overgrow your heart. You say, I've had so many disappointments. I've had my hopes raised only to see them dashed before me time and again, and I just don't get my hopes up anymore. It's easy to become a cynic and for your heart to get crusted over, desensitized, to have hardening of the attitudes. You know, back in the day, they called coronary heart disease hardening of the arteries. Remember? That is the buildup of plaque in the arterial walls. We know what that is. 
I'll tell you, spiritually, we can get hardening of the heart, hardening of the attitudes. So he warns us. This is the second of five warning passages in the Hebrew letter. And interestingly, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 is a reminder of the most important episode in Israel's history. He alludes in these two chapters to what was the formative and epical event in Israel's history. First, the exodus and 40-year wilderness journey under Moses. That's chapter 3. And then secondly, the entrance into and possession of the land of Canaan under Joshua. That's chapter 4. And such an important event as this, you would think that the Bible speaks of it frequently, and it does. Bible writers retell This original story that we learned of in the book of Exodus, they retell it time and again in the scriptures. Moses, some 40 years after that event in Deuteronomy 32, gives his farewell address to the people of Israel and he retells the Exodus story, the 40-year journey in the wilderness, and then the entrance into the promised land which was about to take place under Joshua. Moses tells that in Deuteronomy 32. Psalm 78 retells that story again, Psalm 105. And Stephen in Acts chapter 7 in the New Testament, he goes into great detail to remind his Jewish listeners how that God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt through the Red Sea under Moses, sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness, and then brought them to possess their possessions in the land of Canaan under Joshua. He retells that story in Acts chapter 7. Let me just read one portion from the 78th Psalm to uh, remind you of how this story is told over and over again in the Bible. These three parts, Exodus from Egypt, the wilderness journeys for 40 years, and then crossing the Jordan to enter into Canaan's land under Joshua. Psalm 78, let me just read a short passage here beginning in the 12th verse. Marvelous things God did in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt. You remember how he uh, turned the waters of the Nile into blood? How he filled the land with frogs and lice and moraine on the cattle and darkened the sun so that it did not shine? And finally, the death of the firstborn. God did marvelous things in the land of Egypt, in the land of Zoan, it says. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. And he made the waters to stand as a heap. In the daytime also he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a light of fire. He clave the rocks in the wilderness, and gave them drink as out of great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock, and caused waters to run down like rivers. And they sinned yet more against him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. And they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. Yea, they spake against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? You know, they didn't have a restaurant on every corner as they wandered through the wilderness. And they wondered, how can we eat out here? And imagine the burden that was on Moses to feed a crowd of two million strong for 40 years, every day, and to make sure they had plenty of water to drink. You know, if you're walking in the desert, you'll get thirsty in short order. And to make sure that they had something to drink and something to eat. I mean, to organize two million people 
And when their stomach started to growl, they began to murmur and complain. The murmuring Israelites. You know, complaining is one of those white sins as far as we're concerned. But I'll tell you, God takes it seriously. Murmuring, grumbling, complaining. God does not take kindly to that because in the final analysis, that's an act of unbelief, of distrust. Now, you can develop that habit without even realizing it, you know? It's too hot. Oh, it's too cold. That preacher preached too long. He preached too short. No, no, I don't think I've ever heard a complaint about that. He preached too short. Or um, the traffic's terrible. You know, we can get in the habit of just complaining, complaining, complaining about everything. And God says that they provoked me in the wilderness in our text. They didn't trust me. And everything they saw, they looked at negatively. You say, well, preacher, I'm just that personality type. Well, I don't think it's a matter of personality, dear friends. It's a sin in the Bible to complain and murmur against God. Neither murmur ye, says 1 Corinthians 10, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyers. That sounds pretty serious. Have you ever thought of that word murmur? Two syllables. And each syllable is identical. M-U-R-M-U-R. One of my children sat by me in church one day and we were singing that song, Oh, Meekly Wait and Murmur Nod, and he was just learning to read. And he sounded it out with his finger and he looked up at me with a grin on his face. He said, Daddy, that's a funny word, isn't it? You know, sometimes you can just look at a word and it strikes you funny, the way it looks. Murmur. I'll tell you, it's not so funny when God's people do it. So Psalm 78, he says, They tempted God by saying, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? They didn't trust him. Behold, he smote the rock that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. But they asked, can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? Therefore, the Lord heard this. And by the way, the Lord hears what we say, doesn't he? And was wroth. And so a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger came up against Israel because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. Now that's the very episode that our writer has referenced to now in our text when he says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness when your fathers tempted me proved me and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their heart. So here in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, the writer alludes to each of these three acts in the Jewish play. Act 1 is the exodus. Act 2 is the wilderness journey for forty years. Act 3 is the entrance into the land of Canaan. That story is alluded to in the passage before us, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 in the New Testament. And notice he makes application of this familiar episode to these Jewish Christians. And that brings us to this important insight, my beloved, this morning. The Old Testament pilgrimage of Israel is a picture and a pattern of the Christian life. Let me just remind you that the death of Christ is referred to in Luke 9.61 as the ultimate exodus. Remember when Moses and Elijah appeared on Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration? It says they spoke of Christ's decease 
which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. You may be interested to know that the word translated decease in that verse means more than just his death. It means exodus, deliverance. Just as Moses delivered the nation out of the iron furnace of Egypt, so Jesus Christ would deliver his people when he died on the cross of Calvary from the penalty of sin. The death of Christ is compared to the exodus. Jesus is called our Passover lamb. You remember where the story of the Passover came from? The exodus, right? The tenth of the ten plagues was the death of the firstborn. God told the Jews that if you will take a lamb, a firstling of the flock, and will keep that lamb for a period of time and make sure that it has no spot or blemish, and then slay it in the evening. And take the blood of that lamb and apply it to your doorposts and lentils. God says, when I pass through the land to smite the firstborn, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. You know, don't you, that God didn't command them to nail a copy of the Ten Commandments. Of course, the Ten Commandments hadn't quite yet been given to Moses formally. But uh, he didn't say, nail my moral law to the doorposts of your homes. It's not the law that delivers us from the bondage of corruption. He said, take the blood of the Passover lamb and apply it. And it wasn't enough just for that blood to be shed. It had to be applied. And I want to say, dear friends, that the blood that Jesus Christ shed on Calvary's cross is applied to every one of his children when they are born again, when they are quickened by the Spirit. He takes that blood and he applies it to you. And one day you will be spared from God's judgment. He will pass over you. The final day when Jesus comes again, may I say that he will not judge you and me according to our sins, for he will see the blood, and he will see that the judgment that you deserved and I deserved has already fallen on Jesus Christ as our substitute. Indeed, Jesus is called in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, our Passover lamb. 1 Peter 1, 19, he said to be a lamb without blemish and without spot, just like the Paschal lamb was supposed to be. So we see the parallel between the Exodus story and salvation by Christ on the cross, don't we? May I say you could also take that further. Look in Acts chapter 7 verse 38. When Stephen preached his sermon, he made reference to the wilderness part of Israel's journey. And he calls the Hebrews, the Jews, the church in the wilderness. And according to John chapter 6 and 7, you know, As the children of Israel journeyed in the wilderness, God sent them manna to eat, bread from heaven, angels' food. He sent them meat to the full, and he also gave them water out of the rock. Everywhere they traveled, there seemed to be a rock that followed them. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, that rock was Christ. That rock is a picture of the refreshment. Jesus is our bread of life. God has sent his own son, who is the bread of life, who sustains our weary souls, and he is the living water, isn't he? You see, the bread and the water in the wilderness narrative reminds us of the nourishment and refreshment we find in Jesus Christ during our Christian lives. And also you think of the fact that the children of Israel were led by this pillar of cloud. Do you remember the story? When the cloud moves, you move. When the cloud stops, you stop. And you stay there until the cloud journeys, and that will tell you when to go, where to go. The cloud guided them. And doesn't that anticipate the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit to believers. He is our guide. He is our helper. He is our leader. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, 
They are the sons of God. Then as we learn in Hebrews chapter 4, entrance into the promised land prefigures the gospel rest that is available to God's people in the New Testament church. You see, my friends, God delivers his people out of Egypt by his grace, and then they wander in this wilderness, and there's a home, a place of rest for them, but they must strive to enter in at that straight gate. They must fight battles to enter into Canaan. You see, Canaan's land in the Bible is not a picture of heaven and immortal glory as much as it is a picture of the New Testament church. They had to fight battles to get into Canaan's land. There were enemies there. I'll tell you, we don't have to fight any battles to get to heaven. Jesus has already fought that battle for us. And there will be no Jericho we have to battle before we get into heaven. I'm telling you, dear friends, that our home in heaven has been purchased for us. Jesus has finished the work. The warfare is over. Your iniquity has been pardoned. You've received of the Lord's hand double for all of your sins. But my beloved, we do have to labor to enter into that rest in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's work to be done. There are obstacles to be overcome, right? There are burdens to be borne. And so you see how this Old Testament historical narrative sort of anticipates what we would call the life of Christian discipleship. It reminds us that God has delivered us from Egypt, and now many of his children are in the wilderness of this world. But we're calling upon them to enter into their rest, to come and find peace and rest for their souls in the gospel kingdom. That, my friends, is the story of Hebrews 3 and 4. So in a very real sense this morning, I would say it's appropriate to say that every human being is in one of three places today. They're either in Egypt, they're in the wilderness, or they're in Canaan's land. Egypt, the word means darkness. It's a picture, my beloved, of our depravity. It's a picture of man's condition apart from divine grace. It is called, as I mentioned a few moments ago, the iron furnace, a place of bondage, a place of affliction. And did you know that's our condition by nature? We're in bondage. We're in bondage under sin. We're slaves to sin. We're depraved and corrupt by nature. Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were sometimes darkness. That is, you were sometimes Egypt in your heart. Notice he didn't say you were in darkness. He said you were darkness. By nature, I dare say, my beloved, my heart, my mind, my will, my entire person is alienated from the life of God. It is darkness personified. But now you are light in the Lord. You see how this Exodus story speaks to us of eternal salvation. It's Jesus who went into our darkness. He is our Moses and rescued us from the iron furnace of sin. He bore the punishment for us. It's Jesus, my beloved, who's brought us out. I love to remind myself of the narrative in Exodus chapters 14 and 15. You remember after the blood of the Paschal Lamb protected the Israelites, it says in the 105th Psalm, Egypt was glad when Israel departed. <laughs> I've always thought that was a humorous thought. Egypt was glad. That is, they weren't glad originally. When Moses first came to Pharaoh and said, Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. Pharaoh said, Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice? And he, he didn't want to let them go. In fact, it took ten plagues before he finally conceded. 
And finally, it says that Egypt was glad, that is, the children of Israel borrowed from their neighbors. They borrowed from the Egyptians gold and silver. People said, here, take it. Just get out of here, you know. And then they left the land. And as they journeyed, they came to a place where Migdal, a mountain, was on the right. And High, High Haroth, another mountain, was on the left and the Red Sea in front of them. And then suddenly they heard hoofbeats coming up behind them. Pharaoh's heart had been hardened. You know the story, don't you? And he had gathered his army and they had donned their armor and they'd come after Moses. He had had second thoughts about letting them go. You remember what happened as the people then said, what are we going to do? I mean, an enemy behind them, mountains on either side, and the Red Sea in front of them. And Moses said, stand still. And see the salvation of the Lord. Notice he didn't say worry a little while. He said just stand still and watch. You're a spectator in this movie. You see when it comes to your eternal salvation. May I say you and I are spectators. We're passive in that. That's the work of God. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And until you learn to stand still. And to leave your eternal state in the hands of a sovereign God, my friends, may I say that you haven't yet learned the truth of the gospel. The gospel starts with this proclamation that salvation is by the grace of God alone. It's not by your works. He didn't say try to build some boats real fast so we can get across the... How could you build enough boats for two million people? He didn't say... uh, Somebody come up with an idea. We're taking suggestions. Here's a suggestion box. Everybody drop your ideas in the box so that we'll know what to do in this situation. We're in trouble. But you know, while they crossed the Red Sea, God sent in his great mercy a pillar of fire to stand between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And it stayed there all night. While this army, probably thousands abreast in rows, crossed the Red Sea. And you see, God had parted those waters. When Moses lifted his rod above the water, God caused the waters to stand on heaps. They congealed, the Bible says, on either side, just like jello. The waters of the Red Sea, my friends, stood like mighty walls. And I can just see the people walking on dry ground through the Red Sea and looking up and seeing perhaps a big fish or maybe some sea creature over here and just saying, wow, can you believe this? This is amazing what God is able to do. And I'm telling you, my friends, this morning that when it comes to your eternal salvation, that's the work of God's grace and God's grace alone. Exodus 19:14 describes it like this, remember how I bear you on eagle's wings and brought you unto myself. God says, I swooped down like a mighty eagle and picked up the nation on my mighty wings and I carried them across to the other side. You see, that wasn't due to their own ingenuity, their own skill, their own design. That was the work of God and God alone, God's grace. And your salvation out of Egypt, my friends, may I say this morning, is a work of God's sovereign mercy. And it's a categorical victory. I love the song of deliverance in Exodus 15 when they sang, The horse and his rider hath he drowned in the depths of the sea. The Lord hath triumphed gloriously. You know, in every battle, there are always some casualties. Somebody says, we won the battle, but we lost thousands, this many thousand of military personnel. This many laid their lives down for the sake of our cause. And you say, we won the battle, but we suffered some losses. 
I'm telling you though that whenever the Lord conquered the Egyptians, they didn't suffer a single casualty. This was a victory, it was a triumph, and it was a glorious triumph, that is a categorical victory. The Lord hath triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider, and every last Israelite came out of Egypt. And even the bones of Joseph came out. Remember the story how Joseph hundreds of years earlier said, the Lord shall surely visit you, and when he does, take my bones with you when you leave Egypt. He said that by faith. When the Lord did indeed visit the nation, and he rocked Pharaoh's world, Moses and the children of Israel borrowed from the Egyptians, they gathered their belongings, and they set out to leave the land where they had been slaves in the iron furnace for over 400 years. And Moses said, oh, just a minute, somebody go get Joseph's bones. He asked us to carry them with us. And you know that tells us that when Christ saved his people from their sins on Calvary's cross, every last one of his covenant children that were loved by the Father and chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, even those that have long since gone the way of all the earth, every last one of them came out when Jesus died on Calvary's cross. He said in John 6, 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Yes, Exodus chapters 14 and 15 is a story of how that all of God's children who were delivered by Moses from Egypt prefigures all of God's children that are delivered legally by Christ on the cross of Calvary. And I'll tell you, every last one of them, furthermore, will be brought out of nature's darkness into a vital union with Jesus Christ at some point during their lifetimes by the grace of regeneration. Colossians 1.13 describes it like this, that he hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 10, how the apostle says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Notice here Paul is reiterating, recapturing, retelling that old story. He said, brethren, don't forget I don't want you to be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Notice the word all here. And were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That is, they were all identified with Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat that same spiritual meat and did all drink that same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. All, 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 all that the Father gave to the Son were redeemed by the Son. And it was by grace alone. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. I want to ask you today, my beloved, have you learned to just be still and observe what wonderful things God has done for your soul? Stand still and watch Him at work. That's where the gospel starts. You say the gospel tells us to do, be doing. No, it starts by saying sit down and rest in the finished work of Christ. And then you can rise up to do good works. We do believe in good works. We just believe they come after God's work of salvation. So the children of Israel came out of Egypt. And after God brought them out of Egypt, he gave them his law at Sinai. Remember the story of the Ten Commandments? And commanded them to live a life of faith and obedience. You do what I say, and I'll bring you into the promised land. And notice, this is conditional. The law that he gave them depends upon their wills. 
Now, their exodus from Egypt didn't depend on their wills. That was God's work. He did it. God didn't say, if you'll uh, do what I say, then I'll... He, he bore them on eagle's wings. He carried them out. How did they get out of Egypt? I'll tell you, God carried them. He delivered them. Whether they wanted to or not, even the bones of Joseph came out. You can't tell me that Joseph's bones made a willful decision and said, we want to leave Egypt. No, my friends, they were acted upon, right? The children of Israel were carried out of Egypt by grace alone. But when they came to Mount Sinai, God gives them a covenant which is conditional. They've now come out of Egypt. They've been saved by the grace of God. Now he says, you need to live your lives to please me, right? Their wills are involved. Did you hear we read about it in our text, verse 7? Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if you will hear my voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. Now, I want to say there's a difference in if you will hear my voice and the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. You're familiar with that verse, aren't you? John 5, 25, barely, barely. Jesus says, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. You see, they're dead. That's our condition by nature. We're, not, we're unresponsive to stimuli. But the Lord speaks His life-giving voice and when He speaks, His children live. They hear and they respond. That's new birth. The dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live, shall hear. But now this verse says, today, if you will hear his voice. And doesn't that imply that you might not hear it? If you will, your will is involved in living the Christian life. After God has saved you and me from our sins, you have to make a decision. And I have to make a decision. You say, well, preacher, I believe when the Lord's ready for me to serve him, he'll just pick me up by the hair of the head and make me do it. No, You have to make the choice. When Moses came to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, says Hebrews 11, choosing, rather, to suffer affliction with the people of God. He made a choice. Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will serve. When it comes to your eternal salvation, that choice is God's. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1.4, according as he hath chosen us. But when it comes to serving him, my beloved, in this life, you must choose and I must choose. We must make a decision. We must come to the point in our lives when we're ready to say, I have decided to follow Jesus. I'm going to live like a believer, turn my back on the deceiver. I'm going to live what I believe. You have to make that decision. Today, if you will hear now, the Holy Ghost is speaking today as the Holy Ghost saith. You say, Brother Mike, I thought that God is not speaking anymore. You've preached earlier and from chapter 1 of Hebrews that God has spoken once and for all. He once spoke by the, to the fathers by the prophets in dreams and visions, but he has spoken to us by his Son. And I distinctly remember, somebody says, when you said, preacher, that revelation is a finished work. I stand by that statement even now. God is not still giving new truth. We don't need any amendments or addendums to the Bible. God has revealed everything that you and I need to know in this book. It's a thorough furniture and all good works. But I'll tell you, through what he's revealed in Scripture, he still speaks to us through this word. He still speaks through what he has spoken. Today, if you will hear his voice... 
I want to say it's easy to come to church and to say we've come to hear the pastor's weekly sermon. But I hope if I'm preaching this word that you're not just listening to Brother Mike's pulpit effort. I hope you're listening for the voice of the Lord to speak to you through his word today. You know, we sing a song sometimes that says, In thy great name, O Lord, we come to worship at thy feet. In the second verse, he says, We come to hear Jehovah speak. To hear the Savior's voice. You know, that's a wonderful way to think of public worship. We come today to hear the Lord speak. Paul commended the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, we thank God, brethren, that when you received the word which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as the word of God. Well, my friends, when we assemble for worship, we should come with this attitude. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth, waiting for thy gracious word. Speak to me, Lord, through your word this morning. There's another hymn in our hymnal that goes like this. Jesus calls us o'er the tumult of our life's wild, restless sea. My, what a vivid image that is of daily life. Our life's wild, restless sea. You ever feel like your boat is being tossed to and fro in the storms of daily life? Maybe you've been in a storm this week. But I'm telling you, in the midst of all of the turmoil of life, Jesus is calling you saying, Christian, follow me. Today, if you will hear his voice, I'm talking to you this morning, my beloved. You say, I sure wish brother so-and-so was here to hear this message. No, my friends, forget about brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so. I'm speaking to you today. Today, if you will hear his voice, don't let your heart become hard because it can happen to you and it can happen to me. You see, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that all came out of Egypt, but notice in the fifth verse, but with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. He says, don't be idolaters, verse 7, as were some of them. I want you to sometime go through 1 Corinthians 10, the first 10 or 12 verses or so, and circle the words or make note of the words all and some, all and some. All of his people came out of Egypt, but some of them fell in the wilderness. All of God's people were delivered, but with many of them, he wasn't pleased. And some of them committed fornication. Some of them were idolaters. Some of them tempted Christ. Some of them murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. He says, brethren, the things that happened to them were our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things. That is, we need to study history to learn lessons for our lives right now. And here's the lesson you and I need to learn, my friends. If God has brought you out of Egypt, you need to make a willful decision to walk according to His revelation. And if you do, He will lead you to Canaan's land. He'll lead you to find rest for your souls. Now I want to ask you, is there anybody here who doesn't want rest? Raise your hand. <laughs> I don't see many hands going up this morning. I would like a little rest, to be honest with you. Somebody says, what do you want for Christmas? I say, well, I'd just like a little rest. <laughs> you ever feel like that? I always get tickled at how people respond to the question, uh, you know, how are you doing? Some people say, better than I deserve. I always like that response. Great, if I was any better, I couldn't stand myself. I, I've always wondered about those kind of people. But then every once in a while, somebody will say, how are you doing? Somebody will say, uh, well, 
I'm just tired, tired all the time. You ever met somebody, encountered somebody who says, tired, I'm just so tired. You know, who, who in here is not tired? You need rest? You know, not only do we need rest in our bodies, but we need rest most of all in our hearts. Because most of the tiredness we feel is because our hearts are tied in knots. We're worried and anxious and fretful, and we're just, as, we're just tied in knots on the inside. Oh, to be calm, to have peace and rest. There is a rest that remains for the people of God, my beloved. There is peace available to you in the gospel, in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's a rest that can be found even in the midst of the labor of the church. Here in the vineyard of my Lord, I love to live in labor. You say, preacher, I thought you were talking about rest. But you know, this is an easy yoke. Jesus said, my yoke, my burden is easy. My burden is light. And when you come unto me, you will find rest for your what? Bodies? No, your souls. If you need anything, and I need anything in our lives, really, if we need anything, it's, it's, it's right in here in our hearts. Would you agree? I need help on the inside. I need to win the battle in here. I need peace and joy and a good attitude. I need help on the inside. You say, preacher, I need more money, a better place to live. I need help on the, in the externals of life. No, you get the inside right. You put the man together and the world will come together. You remember that story? You've probably heard it about the people who were trying to put the puzzle together and they could, just couldn't figure it out. And then a little six-year-old boy came along and he put it together and they were all amazed. And they said, how did you figure it out? He said, well, if you look on the other side, there's a man on the other side. And you put the man together and the world, the map of the earth comes together. You put the man together and the, on this side, the globe comes together. I'm telling you, dear friends, you put yourself together and your world will be better. And where does it start? It starts in here. And that's why it's so crucial to hear this warning. Beware of a wandering heart. You see, the children of Israel that came out of Egypt had 11 days before they could reach the promised land. From where they crossed the Red Sea to Kadesh Barnea on the border of the land of Canaan was an 11-day journey. Do you know how long that 11 days took them? 40 long years. Why? Well, because they sent 12 spies from each of the tribes, a leader out of each of the 12 tribes, they sent someone, a delegation over to spy out the land of Canaan. You can read about this in the 13th chapter of the book of Numbers. And listen to what he says in the 16th verse of Numbers chapter 13. These are the names which Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said unto them, get you up this way southward and go up to the mountains and see the land. What it is, and the people that dwelleth therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad. So you go and do some reconnaissance work for us. You're being sent on a fact-finding mission. They weren't to go out there and start a war. They were to go in to gather some information and bring it back to us. We want to know what we're looking for. We want to know the land that we're headed to. Whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not, and be ye of a good courage and bring the fruit of the land. So, so they went up and they searched the land from the wilderness of Zin under Rehob as men come to Hamath and they ascended by the south and came unto Hebron. It says in verse 23 of 
Numbers 13, and they came unto the brook of Eschol, and they cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes. We're talking about just one cluster of grapes. And they bear it between two upon a staff. I'll tell you, that must have been a heavy cluster of grapes. It took two men to carry it. We're not talking about a few little grapes that you can pick up at the supermarket and put in your basket, you know, with one hand. Talking about a cluster that they had to put on a stick and carry it on their shoulders between two men. And it says they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. The place was called the brook Eschol because of the cluster of grapes, which the children of Israel cut down from thence. And they returned from searching the land after 40 days. And when they came to Moses and Aaron, they brought back word unto them, listen, and all the congregation showed up and they showed them the fruit of the land. Man, have you ever seen, ooh, we're going to this land that flows with milk and honey. They told them we came unto a land, surely it floweth with milk and honey, this is the fruit of it. That simply means it's a prosperous, bountiful land. Nevertheless, the spies said, they've given them the sugar, look at the fruit, it's beautiful. This land is like the Garden of Eden. Nevertheless, the people that be there be strong, that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Anakims were giants. The sons of Anak were giants like Goliath. In other words, they were big and we were small. And while the spies said, it's just too much for us. We can't do it. It's a good land, but there are too many obstacles, too many problems. Caleb stilled the people. As the people started murmuring, saying, oh, I'm just so disappointed. Caleb stilled the people, it says in verse 30. And said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. You forget these people have come out of Egypt. And Caleb says, we can do it. We can take it with the blessing of God. But the men that went up with Caleb, you see only two of the spies brought back a good report, Caleb and Joshua. But the other ten said, we be not able to go up against the people. They are stronger than we and they said, the land through which we've gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. Moreover, we saw giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, so were we in their sight. That is, we felt to be very intimidated. Murmuring Israelites. Can't do it, can't do it. Wait. Wait. Wasn't it just a couple of months ago you came across the Red Sea on dry ground? How'd you get out of Egypt? God took us. God did it. He conquered the Egyptians. He drowned Pharaoh and his 600 chosen chariots in the depths of the sea. But we can't take this land. You know why they said that, my friends? Unbelief. All of them came out, but with some of them, God was not well pleased. And they fell in the wilderness. So here the apostle applies the story to us today and he says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And interestingly, that word departing means standing aloof, keeping your distance. They just don't want to quite get involved. Let's look at it from over here. Departing from the living God. An evil heart, a hardened heart of unbelief. It could happen to you, it could happen to me. If we start looking at the giants and the problems instead of at the God in whom we trust. You know what will happen if we do that? An 11-day journey will turn into 40 years of aimless, meaningless circles, wandering, 
in the wilderness. My beloved, here's the warning to us today. Beware of a hardened and wandering heart. Why would you live in the wilderness when you could enter into the promised land? That's how many of God's children are living out in this world. There's rest to be had for you in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's rest for the weary that can't be found anywhere out there. Believe God. Trust Him. He's trustworthy. And delay no longer. Beware, brethren. And those of us who are in the land of Canaan, beware lest we go back into the wilderness, lest our hearts be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will fool you. You know, you can grow cold in your heart before you even know it. Maybe you're there right now, struggling with a cold heart. Oh God, warm my heart. I love the poet's words. God laid His mighty hand, he says, upon my heart's disarray. Was there a time in your life when that happened? And tears, what bitter tears, fell down like drops of sudden rain. Oh, for another touch of God. He says, give me my tears again. Have you reached the point where you're so cynical and crusted over with the scar tissue of worldliness that your heart that once was so pliable and soft and tender before God has become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin? May God touch your heart again and mine this morning. May he give us our tears again. Thank you.